0: episode 62 of the intercooler podcast welcome back everybody Uh, today we're talking about japanese performance car culture because there's just so much cool stuff to talk about but before we do we need to give you uh the the intercooler app update um andrew today as we're recording this on the first of june we published our rimac nevera first drive um Ben Oliver's been to Croatia to drive it. It's quite an interesting car, isn't it? 1,900 horsepower, all-electric hypercar. This was the concept too. They've now called it... Are we going with Nevera?
1: What's the alternative? Nevera?
0: Nevera? 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 Nevera. But, I, I mean, all I wanted to say was it's bold calling it something with never in the name. Should there be production delays, it's just going to be called the Rimac Never, isn't it? <laughs> let's, hope that, let's hope that doesn't turn out to be the case.
1: Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's kind of it's kind of the first of the. Okay, this was actually a pre-prod unit, so uh, if you look at this on the Instagram site, that's why it's a feature rather than a drive, uh, because we don't mind doing pre-production units as drives as long as they are completely representative of what a customer's going to buy. And this one wasn't quite. It was like I you know it, it's nearly there but it's not quite there um so when dan arrive drives a completely finished car we'll do that as a formal drive um but it, nevertheless it is you know it's kind of it's the first of those uh certainly that we featured um you yeah, know, near 2000 horsepower electric hypercars um to feature and you know it is a whole new breed of car and you know i think i think what it's going to do is i think it's going to attract a massive spectrum of opinion there will be those who are who say this is simply unbelievable this moves the game so far beyond anything any petrol car could ever imagine achieving um, and there will be those, those who are going hang on hang on hang on you know you can't you know fast and fun are not the same thing it weighs whatever it weighs a couple of tons um, and it's a dead end this is not the way to do that kind of car um so have have a look at ben's piece um you know neither dan nor i've driven it um so you know it's a very very interesting obviously beautifully written um assessment of the car um and yeah go take a look
0: it occurs to me that an electric hypercar is one thing you know because if you're spending two million quid on a car you've got other cars maybe you do a bit of racing or whatever it's part of a collection isn't it and i can well imagine waking up one day and going I'm going to take the electric one, just because sometimes you would. And it's a very think, short journey. <laughs> I think it's, a, I think it's um, a quite different matter when we're talking about an electric Lotus or an electric Boxster or A110 or something, because that's very probably some, someone's only car, and it might be the only car they ever have access to. Yes. And so to sort of gladly forego a combustion engine and a manual gearbox um it those cars are going to have to be really special aren't they they are and you know, and and the problem
1: also with those cars exactly with the you know the alpines and the Lotuses and that sort of thing they can't not be light um so but the, but that is where you know it's fine if you've got you know a Rimac or a pinaferina or a, uh, a lotus you know because as you say they're going to be part of a collection they're certainly not going to be anybody's you know daily driver or anything so you can be very selective about how they, about how you use them. But if it's going to be, you know, something like, you know, a Lotus Elise, you know, that's going to be a car you're going to want to have to do distances in. Well, to do a distance, you need a big battery. So they are betting the farm on the recharging network, aren't they?
0: Because if that's not there, then how are are you going to use these cars? And if you talk to the likes of Rimac and Pininfarina, they say that, they're adamant that the big battery route is the correct one for now because people want the range they want the usability the charge infrastructure really isn't there yet um and so even though their cars are heavy they're adamant that they've chosen the right route it's 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 interesting isn't it even within the the sort of electric car world there's a vhs Betamax thing going on big I, battery I, small I, battery
1: and then look at it the other way around let us suppose the charging infrastructure does turn up, and it turns up very quickly. And everybody else is instead of doing two ton cars, they're able to do I don't know, fourteen hundred kilo cars. What are these two ton things going to look like? They're just going to look like dinosaurs, aren't they? They're just going <laughs> to look like these huge, enormous monstrosities that you know once roamed the world when the world was a rather different place to the one that it is now. Mm. Interesting, don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, I do have so much sympathy because I mean, the truth is, nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to be available and when. And how much it's going to cost and how well it's going to work. And so all these guys, they can say, well, you know, we know it's going to be like this." nobody knows. Everybody is taking a punt and there'll be some people who go there, some people who go there and some people who go, eh, I'm going to go in the middle. Um, and who knows who's going to be right. Um, I mean, I, I, actually, I take the, I take the view that actually I think you have to trust in the, in the infrastructure because fundamentally, you have to focus on the product and you know a light car is a better car from a driving point of view and I think you just have to back the ability to get the charging infrastructure in place because ultimately, if you don't do that, what you're looking at is a fundamental, you, you're always pre-engineering a fundamental flaw into your car in that it will just be heavy which for the sorts of cars that we're talking about um, is absolutely what you don't want them to do particularly because you haven't got anything else because you haven't got a gearbox and you haven't got an internal combustion engine and yada, yada, yada. Mm
0: this one's going to ramble on and on isn't it it is we'll see how it plays out um okay so yeah that's that review of the rimac is now on the app um there's a shorter version much much shorter version on the instagram site if you want the full things go and check out the app if you haven't downloaded it do you can download it for free start your subscription for free you get a, a free one month trial it's very easy to cancel if you don't want to carry on just give us a go um we think that lots and lots of you have downloaded the app we can see the data many of you have subscribed as well so to all of you thank you so much it's it's been a really encouraging first month and a bit um and we've got some big big improvements coming and lots more great stuff so thank you for joining us and if you haven't already
1: why not do so now it's i mean i've I've made this point on twitter before it's a pint of beer and if you don't like the taste you can send it back immediately and they'll give you my i mean it's it's a pint of beer a month um and you know obviously we think it's we think it's worth it but you know if you go and look at we went through 500 ratings and reviews on the uh apple and google source over the weekend um and we are rating 5.0 on both and you can't do better than that this sounds terribly big-headed doesn't it but i'm just trying to i mean but the thing is we haven't got the resources to go and you know buy an audience um and so really and, and also we just think it's better that we talk to you guys about this and we tell you um how things are rather than trying to sort of dress it up some other way um and we just hope i guess that you just think it's worth having a look at because there is there is literally no downside if you don't like it just go into the settings on your telephone and get rid of it it's that simple and if you do then you know maybe you'll come and join us anyway enough of the uh, <laughs> enough of the of the heavy sell um, we enough. just hope you like it
0: yeah well exactly what he said um okay but this week we are actually talking about japanese performance cars and i've been wondering in preparation for this over the weekend is there an essential nature on a or an essential character to a typical Japanese performance car. And I started thinking that, well, yes, there is. They very often have high-revving engines. They're relatively light, modest power, quite live wire handling. And that's true to an extent. But then there are so many contradictions to that. Uh, You think about GTRs, you think about Supras, Evos, and Imprezas. Um, And then I realized that, actually, when you look at it closely, there's so much variety in Japanese performance cars. But I, I think there is a common thread. And I no, think, I think, that I, think is... I think you're right. There is. But go on. Let's let's hear what you think it is.
1: Okay. I just, I just think it is dedication to engineering, mm. to proper stuff. If you know, all those cars. You know, where if you if you look at, you know, a Nissan GTR, which which to be honest is not particularly my my kind of car, um, or I don't know, you know, a, a Honda s800 from the 1960s with you know a twin cam engine we 800 cc twin cam engine which rev to eight and a half thousand revs in the 1960s i mean what do those cars have in common i mean you look at them on paper they couldn't be more different but in fact they are both just amazingly engineered things they're both just trying to do stuff that's really really difficult to do because they can and i think more than anything else uh, when i think of almost all good Japanese, performance, sporting, fun, interesting cars. I just think of the passion that's behind them. I just think, you know, that that nation is... They are as crazy about cars as anybody. Um, you know, every bit as nuts as us, or the Italians. Um, and they just love to demonstrate it. And they demonstrate it through these exquisitely engineered machines. And it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about, I don't know, a Civic Type R or, or you know, an original Honda NSX. You know, they're just... Beautifully done things, aren't they?
0: You're right. It's it's that focus on the quality of the engineering, attention to detail, but also unusual engineering. Um, and there are just so many examples. One is the the R35 Nissan GTR, as you've mentioned, front engined, transaxle four wheel drive. So it has to send the power backwards to the gearbox to send it forwards again to the front axle. <laughs> and it's just you know that sort of solution. It's it's so sort of quintessentially Japanese I love it it's just it's so interesting so much interesting engineering going on I mean
1: if you're yeah old like me the fascinating thing is is that when I was young I mean Japanese cars were just things that you laughed at um you know this was back in the day when you know Nissan was called Datsun and if you looked in the back of car magazine um in the infamous good bad the ugly um sort of review section and there would just be you know, under boring saloons or boring coupes and sports cars, which is how they used to categorise it, um, you could just read the most trenchant criticism, maybe it was some comments which, were, which are just plain rude. And we just used to <laughs> laugh at, you know, uh, you know, Datsuns and Toyotas and and, and, and all this, what we considered to be absolute rubbish because they were just cheap, they fell for bits, um, and they were terrible to drive um but i think i guess certainly in my uh lifetime and my sort of car consciousness even then there was a sense that well they could do it if they wanted to because there was a thing called the Datsun 240z and the 240z was the first of the z cars um and we know and we've and there've been various z cars both good and bad ever since um and amidst all this rubbish that they were knocking out came this car which was beautiful It had a straight six engine with three carburettors stuck on the side. It was light. um, And it was fantastic. People just loved them. Um, They were very successful racing cars. And that just kind of made all us think, thinking, okay, so they can do it. So what's it going to be like when they actually choose to do it, when they all start to do it? And I think that they all started to really, really get going and start producing some amazing things uh about what would it be 30 years ago a bit more so yeah you know, the mx5 can we just talk about the mx5 for a bit
0: Absolutely. You know,
1: I, did the, I, I did the first mx5 uh road test in the uk that was the Auto um road test on the car and i could just remember thinking oh shit it's all over this is the, the best thing of its kind there has ever been it's kind of a lotus lan without any of the drawbacks it was a car which was i mean it was it was it was close to flawless, really when that thing first turned up I mean, I can remember driving it so, i mean it had a beautiful little twin cam engine rear drive and the the gearbox What I mean just you know and the gear and you knew it could only have been created by people who got cars in the same way the rest of us got cars, totally passionate because you can't synthesize that you can't just think you know if you're not really really into it you just make a different kind of car because you wouldn't understand um and goodness they understood and the balance of the car and the look of the car I mean, obviously it was you know somewhat um you know inspired by the original Lotus Elan um but it, there was all that and you know it actually worked because you know you could literally you know if you wanted to put the hood the, the, the roof down you go flick flick chuck it over your head roof down you know, to put it back up again, reach over your shoulder, put it back on and And, you know, and it rode perfectly well. It was, it was quiet enough. You could use one as a daily driver. They were fantastically well built. Uh, that's why there are so many of them still knocking about today. Um, and like I just remember thinking, well, that's it. You know, if they can do this, uh, there, there's nothing that they can't do. And then they started doing other stuff. So, you know, another Z car came along, the 300 SX at about that same sort of time, which was, terrifyingly close to being as good as what kind of Porsche would have been around at the time in 968, I guess, or maybe just late no, late 944. Um, and then came the NSX. And that was kind of like, you know, the NSX turned up. On top of everything else, the, the non-sporting stuff, like, you know, they did an amazing Nissan Micro at the time. And then the Lexus turned up, the LS400. Um, okay, it's not a sporting car, but again, that t- totally reset the rules. And we thought, oh my goodness. And, and Toyota really clever, because when the LS400 turned up, they said, this is our practice car. Okay, because we've never done a car like this before. So this is us just kind of, you know, finding our feet toe in the water. And it was quieter than an S-Class. It was more comfortable than an S-Class. And we're all sitting there thinking, well, the European car industry was, you know, which had just ruled the roost since the dawn of time was just sitting there thinking, oh, shit. Um, Of course, it didn't turn out to be their practice car. In many ways, it's, you know, it's arguably when that LS400 was new, it was the best car of its type that had ever been made. And I don't think the Lexus has made a better one since. But then the NSX. The NSX. I mean, when you drive a Ferrari today, and you think this is absolutely amazing, part of the reason for that is the NSX. If you think about what Ferrari had at the time that the NSX came out, they had the Mondial, they had the Testa Rossa, and they had the 348. Unquestionably. The most rubbish lineup of cars Ferrari has ever had in its entire history.
0: Just as an aside, and I, I'm, I, sorry, no, I'm I, sorry, I, I'm I don't want to break your flow. No, no, I don't want to break your flow at all. This, this is good stuff. But what's a Mondial like to drive? Uh,
1: actually, actually, I quite like Mondials. Um, not very quick, um, but because they had a longer wheelbase, um, you know, those the two-seaters at the, the 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 thing that people. Just don't say these days is that, you know, 308s and 328s and 348s in particular were really tricky cars. Really difficult to drive on the limit. And a Mondial wasn't. But it was a bit softer and it had a longer wheelbase so you could, you know. And, and I do quite like a Mondial. Uh, you've got to get the right one. So you've got to get the one in the middle because the early ones, are the 3-litre cars are just can't get out of their own way. They're so slow. And the 3.4-litre cars had that horrible transverse gearbox in it, which didn't work. So you've got to get a 3.2. Um, But a 3.2 Mondas, good value today. Um, Yeah, good. Okay, well, I I, I, I mean, not a good car, but
0: quite a quite
1: quite, quite a likable car. Okay. Anyway, sorry, I I, I was back to my yes, I was extemporising on the NSX. Well, you you were
0: saying that you were saying that Ferrari had a fairly ropey lineup of cars at that time. The
1: most ropey lineup of cars that they have ever had. Um, I can remember doing a group test with an NSX, a 911 Turbo, and a Spree, and a 348. Um, and the NSX won, and the Ferrari came last. And that, to me, was uh, that was kind of a bit of a red letter day. That was just like, oh my goodness! Uh, and you could just see how complacent Ferrari had come, um, how they'd been, you know, how long they'd rested on their laurels and just thought, well, that's good enough because we're Ferrari. Then the NSX turns up um, with that incredible V six engine and that amazing gearbox. Um, and it was light, it was all aluminium, it had all aluminium suspension. It was you know, it was they built a factory to build it. It was just beautiful. And you and you could just see the guys in Maranello looking at it and going, actually, maybe it's not okay to build cars like this anymore. Um and you know, in a heartbeat it seemed the three four eight had been turned into the three five five. And suddenly oh, okay. That's how good this car could have been. Because the three five five is a facelifted three four eight. And there has never in the history of the car been a more successful facelift than that. And that's Ferrari actually going, Oh, okay, we better stop mucking about now. And then suddenly they come up with a four five six. Um and you know, and and, and and the tester also becomes a five twelve TR. You know, these things are, you know, are not coincidences that all this stuff happened straight after the NSX came out. Um you know, Ferrari would never ever say that the nsx was the biggest boot up the arse that we've ever had but that is how i have always read it and if you look at the chronology where ferrari was before and after the nsx and that set ferrari on a direct course to where they are today which is why i say when you drive a ferrari today and you think my god this is a good car a tiny bit of that if you link it right back i'm sure it would have happened anyway um but the catalyst for the conversion of ferrari i believe was the nsx Oh, that's interesting sure. it's a hell of a legacy i've prattled, a, I prattled on a bit too long about that but no. I mean, this stuff matters but it matters to me because you know you know i was i was around at the time and i can just remember the sort of you know all those sharp intakes of breath um when it first turned up because you know it i i think some people had driven it in japan we certainly hadn't um and you know there's there sound it seemed to me to be a lot of hot air spoken about this car uh, and then, you know, we, Auto Car, we were, you know, the impartial arbiters, all these things, and we'd really see this car for what it was. And it came and we just thought,
0: <laughs> oh, no, it really is that <laughs> good. That good. <laughs> it really is that good. That's great. Um, so I, I, we'll come back to the NSX. I just want to talk a bit more about the MX-5 um, because basically the principles that underpin that car are just right for a, a little roadster. Just, they've just always been right. And I, I remember speaking to a Japanese MX-5 engineer um, during the launch of the fourth generation model, so the current one, uh, this must have been 2016, I think, um, and he was explaining that his favourite version of that new car was the basic one with the smaller engine, tiny ditty little anti-roll bars, and no LSD. And he was saying that it's because when you're you go around a corner, you put your foot down, and as you're exiting, if the inside, we, if you've applied too much throttle, you feel the inside rear wheel just. Spin, just go, um, and the car won't slide or anything. You'll just feel that go, just break traction. And then he said that he loves that instant feedback, that moment of rotation of the tire, and you know straight away that your driving was wrong. And he said that that's the the buzz that he gets out of driving. And I thought, okay, well, actually, that's not how I enjoy driving. Um, but I just sort of reflect on that now, and I think. I don't think you'd ever hear that from a European car engineer or from an American car engineer. I think that is a a sort of uniquely Japanese perspective about delicacy and poise and...
1: Yeah, I mean, well, actually, uh, it's a slightly... And I think this is a very, uh, I think this shows how, you know, the Japanese honour, I mean, particularly Lotus in particular. I, I mean, that is, you know, that 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 has been a sort of slightly Lotus perspective, hasn't it? I mean, I've never heard anyone Lotus express it in terms of what you're talking about, about the wheel spinning up. But, you know, there is a good argument to say that a low-powered car, a, a, you know, a, a, a limited-slip differential actually, you know, causes more problems than it solves. Because if you haven't got the power to go, you know, sliding it about on the power. Yeah, what's um, it for? But, and, and, and actually, all, all it really serves to do is make the car understeer a bit more and, and upset the balance of the car. Um, but it's, it's great that they are sitting there thinking about this stuff, isn't it?
0: Well, so what, what, I, yeah, what I think is that you and I often talk about, on this podcast, we talk about cars that are fun to drive at sensible road speeds and how that seems to be getting eroded more and more. But I don't know, perhaps it's, I mean, there, there are others, of course, but maybe it'll be the Japanese car industry that understands that more than any other and that celebrates the kind of car that you can drive enthusiastically on the road without taking huge liberties. Yeah.
1: And, I, and I think that, you know, at this massive crossroads, you know, it, at the time of quite clearly the most significant change in the motor industry, I probably think that there's ever been, certainly within my lifetime, uh, I think that there will be opportunities for really, really clever, intelligent engineering solutions. I don't know what they are, Um And, you know, if I was going to back anybody to come up with them, I'd back back the Japanese, because, you know, we we, we have seen them do it before. They're Uh, so
0: experimental, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They'll have a crack at it. Uh, Just going going back to the MX-5, um, I think if you wanted to just illustrate as clearly as possible just how good that car is, just how amazing it was then and remains today, just look at... You know, you would think, wouldn't you, that if somebody came up with a really, really good concept for a car, uh, and we've seen this happen, you know, almost every time somebody comes up with a new kind of car or a kind of car that we haven't seen from everybody else that piles in, all the car manufacturers think, right, we'll have a slice of that pie, in we go. They never did. You know, there was you know, there was you know, there was the Alpha Spider and the Fiat Barquetta and the you know, and the last of the Toyota M R Twos and all MGF. these sorts of, and MGF, um and they all sort of came along and they, you know, they had a bit of a sniff about and they had a look, and then they went away again. You know, that is the car for the for thirty years that car has had really no significant opposition. And that is as good a measure as you will find of just how good it is. Because it's become it's not just a sort of a sub-brand which it is it's become a a class by itself to which there is there are effectively no more points of entry because it is just you know it's not a Lotus Elise because it's much more usable than that and it's much more affordable than that um and it's certainly not a Caterham but nor is it you know an Audi TT it is a proper driver's car that you can use every day it's kind of like a sort of you know a really really affordable 911 and you know and and the 911s have been enjoying the same sort of the same sort of thing going for it for the last you know 60 years as well so it's uh i think that is as good a measure as you'll find of just how good it is because usually if a car is really really good it attracts a lot of opposition all trying to as i say jump on the bandwagon but when it's so good that the opposition goes actually no we'll just leave it because we can't you know all we're going to do is come across as being you know poor pretenders then you know i think that's the proper measure of the car
0: yeah yeah you're right and the MX-5 is such an interesting one. I I think it's one of very very few Japanese performance cars that sort of transcended car people. Um I think there are plenty of MX-5 drivers who are not petrol heads, who are not car lovers. They just like a convertible sporty little car. Yeah. Um and that works. I, that works and is affordable. And I th- I think the the point that I was going to make is that for the most part, MX-5 aside, Japanese cars are really car lovers cars right if you you don't normally buy a japanese performance car for status or to show off wealth or to whatever else um if you drive an evo if you drive an Impreza or a civic type r or something like that you do so because you love driving
1: yes and actually when they try to sell um cars you know at the sort of elevated price um that you need to be, to get into that sort of prestige premium but you know they tend not you know the NSX which are, we've been you know waxing lyrical about um it didn't do very well at all i don't think the more, i don't think the new one's doing very well at all um and you know it, i i think largely certainly in europe it's because we're a bunch of badge snobs um and you know there will be people who would buy you know an Audi TT who wouldn't look at you know, a Japanese. We wouldn't look at a GT eighty six,
0: BRZ, yeah, yeah, um,
1: or a BRZ because you know it's better to drive. So what? That's something they they they, they don't require. But you'd have to explain to your neighbour why you turned up in a Toyota or a Subaru instead of an Audi. Um, and it, it, it's it's terrible, but you know, it's true. I believe it's true, and it cuts out such a large constituency of your potential customer base because what you're saying is actually we're only going to appeal to I was about to say proper people which is would be a terrible thing to say. I don't mean that. What I mean is just proper enthusiasts, people who really get driving. Um and you 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 are completely right. There's no other reason to buy. You know, people who used to buy, you know, the old you know, Civic type, you know, the, the original Civic Type R's and you know up until what well, was a couple of generations ago. You know, they had double wishbone suspension at every corner. You know, everybody else has trucks at the front and the beam at the back and honda the go, now we're gonna have double wishbones on ours and we're gonna have an engine which goes to eight and a half thousand revs and you know and you're not gonna care about that um you know when you can buy an I don't know, an Audi A three or a one series or even a Golf GTI. Because they have status. They have they say something about you. Um and if that thing isn't I just really get cars and I just love driving, then you're not going to have one.
0: They certainly have a sort of boy racer image, don't they? Definitely. Dare I say, a slightly chavvy image yeah. um, that a lot of people will find off-putting. A lot of people will. Um, but if you're really into the subject matter, you see beyond that and you see the, the virtues of this machine and you just think, wow, that's a hell of a lot of fun to drive. I'd love one. Yeah. But, okay, let's move on a little bit k cars have you ever driven a k car you must have been in a few yeah although i do wonder if you fit
1: thank you very much none taken yes i do
0: I, No, I do, I I do I, purely height
1: <laughs> yes uh yeah i've driven what have i driven i can't remember although i've driven a figaro i've driven a cappuccino i like okay, it yeah i look ridiculous in them because i'm six foot three um but again i and i know that they were uh, we ought to have had joe on this shouldn't we we ought to have had joe um our, our, our engineer because she's 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 got a cappuccino and she loves all this stuff um so sorry joe you really should have been on this podcast and you could have explained the culture far better than either, I, either well actually us.
0: no i i think we need to get her to write something about k cars and we in defense of the k car and why they're brilliant because yeah. they are interesting little machines
1: they are and and what what interests me i guess most about them is they're not machines that people just thought oh here's a cool kind of car let's do one of these they are cars which only came about because of a set of regulations you know they came about for the most tedious of reasons you know the authorities said you know if you want to have this kind of, I can't remember what it is it's a tax break or something or, you know that your car can't be more than a certain length and you know, have a certain engine size uh, because they wanted i think what they wanted was really small boring cars and the japanese in their own inimitable way thought okay that sounds like a challenge let's see how much fun we can have with this and they just came up with these ridiculous cars uh which oh, I, I just found them charming really really charming lovely things uh, i haven't driven one for a long long time but um yeah i mean what's not to like i'd like the they're, to light, go. they're high, yeah. they've got great technology in them they're different they look cool um you know, compared to any number of, you know, tedious,
0: dull you know, hatchbacks
1: and stuff. Um, yeah, cool.
0: Little 660cc engines, weren't they, with turbos. Um, and actually, you look at them and, okay, they're tiny, they're light, they've got small engines. Um, those principles are actually more relevant now than when the K-Car regulations came in, particularly if you're in in the city. Um, we should all be driving if you live in is it these smaller cars that take up less room that than yes less? I mean absolutely it's, yeah it's yeah just they continue to be relevant even now don't they um now so the the Japanese car industry produces hot hatches by the bucket load and little sports coupes and roadsters and bigger sports cars uh, and four wheel drive rally replicas uh, maybe not so much now as it used to and Big, powerful, thumping coupes like the GTR, but there have only been a small number of supercars, um, and we've mentioned the NSX, uh, and there is, of course, the current one. There's the LFA. Oh, right. Sorry. 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 Come back to that. That response says a lot, doesn't it? Um, but what, so very, very few uh, sort of six-figure. Um, supercars and i wonder why that is i suppose it's because mostly the brands are mainstream um and they have their their sort of upmarket offshoots don't they but yeah
1: i think it comes to it comes back down to what i was saying about snob value i just think those cars are really really difficult to sell and i think that you know honda um have shown i think over, over both cars that you know you can make okay i'm not a fan of the current nsx um it's just i mean you know i think that i think that i think the current nsx shows that you can take that principle and you can just run too far with it it is so overladen with engineering and technology and it's done the one thing that an nsx should never do and it got to and it's just got too heavy i think it's like a sort of 1750 kilo car isn't it um it weighs a thick end of half a ton more than the old nsx um and i don't care that it's got four electric motors and it's four-wheel drive and it's got 800 gears or or whatever you know I just care about what it's like to drive Uh, but fundamentally I'm afraid even if that car had been as good today as the old one was 30 years ago I genuinely think they would still have struggled to sell it because you know (laughs) again it's exactly what I was talking about um you got to turn up in a Honda um when your mates drive Porsches and Ferraris and it, to me, it's really, really sad that those that is a decision-making process, but it undoubtedly is. Um, and that you might forgo all that engineering excellence um, because you just care more about the badge on the front of it and actually have a worse car, which you could well do. I'm not saying that specifically about the current NSX, um, obviously, but you know, in the past and possibly again in the future. You could, you know, people will be, Choosing a car that is not as good, not as good for them, just because they 're a bit iffy about the badge on the you know on the nose of the alternative shame
0: it is a pity, yeah, it is a pity and that, and that probably explains why uh, the Japanese industry has produced so few of those very high end cars, um, although okay let 's just do a couple of minutes on the lFA because i 've never driven one the closest i 've come was chasing jethro, jethro bovington through north wales in one he was he was driving the lfa i was in something i can't remember but it was fast enough to keep up um and all i remember and you, was and you the can't sound. remember
1: it's fast enough to keep up with lfa and you can't remember
0: what it is <laughs> i can't remember what it was um and it I, I, maybe because it doesn't matter what i was driving because i was chasing an lfa and Could when that thing it? accelerates yeah the sound it's unbelievable uh that v10 it was a yamaha v10 wasn't it it was a yamaha v10
1: yeah just sublime i yeah I, i i just get all giddy when i think about the lfa um i know the car was hideously late i know that they lost a packet on every single one of them i mean it was a crazy project really um but it was one of and i think it is it remains one of the very very finest road cars i've ever driven um when they did the Nürburgring edition, I mean, talk about, the, talk about total insanity. When they did the Nürburgring edition, they invited a small number of journalists to, funnily enough, the Nürburgring. Um, and we were waiting around for the usual briefings, all the form fillings, all the disclaimers. And then we were expected to be told, uh, OK, fine. So you, here's the instructor that's going to sit in your car or here's the really slow car you're going to have to follow. And we were just waiting around. Um, and eventually I went up and said someone of them said well, what 's the form?" and they went well there 's the car there 's the track off you go I mean it was just they just put us in l f a s and they gave us the Nordschleifer. this wasn 't the you know the little modern thing um which they'd had exclusively, and just said, "Go and fill your boots and if you wanted to and, and if you wanted to follow something, they had some g t three spec n twenty four something or other there. Which was the only other car they had, which wasn't an LFA, which was quick enough, um, to go fast enough so that you could follow it meaningfully in LFA. And I don't think many of us did. I think we just went and spent a day just arsing around on the Nordschleifer in LFA. I just can't believe we we, we we did that. There was no piece of paper that we signed. We were, no, no one said, you know, no one wagged a finger at us and said, you know, no one even said, just be a bit careful or you know, would you mind bringing it back? We just went off and just behaved like idiots for a day. In these cars and you know i certainly wasn't aware of i don't know how long they ran the program for it might have only been a one-day program i can't remember but you know certainly on the day i was there they all came back and we just had you know i can just remember going down the straight and just hearing this engine going and just watching the speed build and and that handled so well and it was such an intimate and involving and just brilliant experience um yeah with possibly the best engine that's ever gone on a road car I, I might take some convincing that there's ever been a better road car engine than that. Wow. Big call. Um, um, call. Okay,
0: but tell me about the gearbox. I mean, in that environment, fine.
1: You know, if you're going to go out and poodle around the world, around the roads. I mean, and also, I think it is the kind of car that you do make a few allowances for. The gearbox wasn't great. And yes, I'm sure if you went and drove it through heavy traffic in central London, it would, it, 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 it would bug the hell out of you. But it was only, you know, it was just like... It's almost like driving a, a vintage car, uh, without any synchromesh. You know, with all those, if you could drive those sorts of cars, it's just all about timing it correctly and understanding the pauses and weather ratios are and what you have to do between each gear. And as long as you did that, and in the LFA, it would be about 8,000 times easier than it would be in, I don't know, in a vintage Bentley or something. Uh, you just wait a little bit, then you could drive, you mean, you could drive the LFA in a way that your passenger, passenger would think it was a double clutch car but that would be because you were focusing on it so it wasn't ideal but in a car like that which is an ultimate recreation which is likely only ever to be driven um in the right sorts of environments um i wouldn't yeah it wasn't great
0: but you know pff,
1: what robotized manual gearbox ever was frankly
0: mm. yeah not enough to sort of ruin the experience clearly
1: not even, um, not even close
0: no yeah well, we, we know somebody who had an LFA, don't we? Hello, he'll be listening. Uh, he, <laughs> yes, we do.
1: You sold an LFA.
0: <laughs> yeah, you'll never be forgiven for that. Um, okay, well, we need to wrap this up. We've done basically 40 minutes. Well, okay, call it half an hour on Japanese performance cars. And we've not once mentioned the GI Yaris. Should we leave it that way?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I I think the reason we haven't mentioned it is it's so new, and because it has just been everywhere of late, hasn't it? But I mean, I think think all I would say about it is it just shows, you know, the light still burns. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Can I tell one more story? Can I tell one more story? In about in the early nineties, I went to Japan to drive what would have been an NSX R, Um, and that was fun at uh, at the Tachigi test track. And once we'd done all our mucking about in that, um, they said, "Oh, we've got something special to show you." And we went, "Oh, all right." And so we all sat down, and then out of nowhere, this unbelievable noise and a brand new Formula One car just turned up, just in just in carbon fibre, no paint on it at all. Um, and it went and did a few demonstration laps and and I said, well, hang on a second. This is a this is a state of the art." Completely, you know, compliant with whatever the current regs was, Formula One car. But Honda aren't in Formula One. So what's this about? How are you about to renounce your return to Formula One? And they went, no, it's just a sort of, it's just a sort of, you know, weekend project for the boys because, <laughs> you know, they just really like that sort of stuff. And, you know, and they had recently pulled out and they were a bit sad about that. So they thought, well, you know, should, you know, the top brass one day decide to go back in again, we just want to sort of, you know, know, know that we're still, you know, on the case and on the money. So we thought we'd do this. And they just had a Formula One car there
0: wow that's um, incredible
1: and, i mean it was just it was just wonderful and it just the passion and the enthusiasm yeah. and the love and the dedication um it just it just to me that just said it all they they'd just, they just mm. done a pet formula one car on the
0: side because they could because they could there you go and that's where we should leave actually because the enthusiasm for cars and driving is as real there as anywhere else in the world and that's i think that's undeniable good well oh, i quite fancy going to drive a japanese performance car now i don't know which one um uh, can i can i recommend the lfa um
1: there is one toyota do have one yeah
0: yeah they I, do, I don't, don't think they lend
1: that very often um so i think it should you should make it your mission to think of a reason good enough to get them to lend it to you well i've never driven one that'll do won't it
0: there you I'll go i'll put a call in i'll put a call in but, and
1: see what happens if, if anybody if anybody from um from lexus is, is listening to this and it's not, it's not impossible um if you you can find if you can think of any reason which might work uh, we'd be interested to hear and in the meantime we'll have some ideas
0: absolutely we will good stuff okay let's leave that one there um please remember to rate and review the podcast but mostly if you're going to do anything for us just go download the app and and sign up you'll enjoy it i promise um and yeah come back next week um we'll be we're slightly late this week aren't we because of the bank holiday but on monday evening next week there'll be another podcast up um so we'll talk to you then look forward to thanks